0: Children's church, And they can find that through the door uh, on my uh, right, your left, by the piano. Any children, K to second grade, and any children who are going to rehearse for the children's choir for the missions banquet with uh, Connie Wagner, if you're in that category too, you can also be dismissed uh, through the door over here by the, the piano. For the rest of you, open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. It's on page 675 as we continue our new series in the book of Isaiah. By the way, if anyone here was trying to call the church this week or sending an email, uh, we weren't ignoring you. We weren't dissing you. Uh, the, I don't know, you probably heard on the news they yanked up a big, huge phone conduit in Hingham when they were doing the little dig downtown Hingham. And so there's been no phone for like 3,000 people in Hingham for the whole week. So if you were trying to call here and or send an email, I apologize if you not got a response. That it wasn't us trying to to dodge you. It really, we just had no... and they say it could be another week, you know, until they get this thing up and running. So, who knows? Uh, who knows? So anyway, if you need to, if you really need to get in touch with someone, uh, feel free to call Seth at home. Um, yeah. All right, Isaiah chapter one. Let's look at verse ten. Says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have enough, more than enough, of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I. I I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I have a certain relative, uh, part of my extended family, who shall remain nameless, uh, out of respect for this person. But uh, uh, this person, to put it nicely, is very talkative, let's just say. This is one of these people who, you know, all you have to do is just kind of be there nodding, and they can have a conversation with you, and they just and you just have to go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they can go, you know, 20, 30 minutes and they just do all the talking. It's just one of these rather garrulous kind of people. Well, anyway, my father was on the phone with this particular relative. He was on his cell phone, and he was driving back to his office, and he hit one of those dead zones, you know, where you don't get any uh, signal reception, and the phone went, and the phone went dead. And, uh, and finally, the, the signal came back, you know, after a minute or, or so, when he got the signal back and he tried to call the person, it was busy. And he figured, oh, you know, they're trying to call me, I'm trying to call them. And so he, you know, waited a minute and then tried to call again, it was busy, tried to call again, it was busy. Went on for ten minutes until he got back to his office. And he finally got through, and what had happened was, the person was talking the entire time <laughs> and did not know my dad wasn't on the phone. Until... And, and, you know, my dad said it was literally ten minutes that he kept trying to call, and this person just, bub, 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 you know, didn't even know the, that he wasn't there. And so, uh, finally, you know, my dad gets through, and he's, like, crying because he's laughing so hard. <laughs> didn't you know I wasn't on the phone? And the person says, oh, no, oh, no, oh, I'm sorry, you know. When did you get, you know, knocked off? And, and then the person just went on with their conversation. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to use that image and, and pose a question to us this morning. What would happen if God stopped listening to us. What would it be like if we were just prattling on, singing our worship songs, la, 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 la and God was like, hey, you know, I, I tuned out a long time ago. What would happen if we, we said our prayers and did our religious rituals and gave our money in the offering plate and listened to sermons and I preached away and, and God said, oh, what, were you saying something? You know, What happened if we were to enter a spiritual dead zone of sorts and we were doing our religious activity as faithfully as ever, but God was totally disconnected and unplugged. It's a rather terrifying thought. I don't mean to disturb you with it uh, overly, but but this is the thought that's in our text today. This is what Isaiah came to tell Israel. By the way, Israel, God hasn't been listening for a while. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, Isaiah comes to tell Israel that God has not been paying attention to their religious worship. He's tuned it out. He's rejected it. It says in Isaiah chapter one, verse 10. "Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And typically when God starts by addressing you as Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a bad thing. <laughs> you know that the rest of this is not good. Verse 11: "The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me?" says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats." When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. New moon festivals, and your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. God has stopped listening. God has stopped paying attention to the worship of his people. It raises an immediate question, why? What's the big deal? Why has God tuned them out? I mean, why is God so revolted and turned off by their worship? And I think it's a particularly uh, interesting question given the fact that all of these acts of worship that they're doing are things that God told them to do. Now, the Zidane didn't just, didn't just make this stuff up. God was the one who told them to do it. You have in verses 10 through, um, well, I guess down through about 13, you have the sacrifices. Where did the sacrificial system come from? God told them to do that. He is the one who gave it to Moses. Uh, it says in verse 12, When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? And the answer is, well, you did, God. You asked us to come before you into your courts. And God is the one who asks us to pray. So it's, it's, it's kind of a strange thing because God is saying, I'm sick of your worship. Stop it. I'm not listening. I don't want it anymore. But He's the very one who told them to do all these things in the first place. So why is it that God has rejected the very worship that He instituted and commanded to Israel? And the answer comes at the end of verse 15 and following. Look at the last sentence in verse 15. He says, Your hands are full of blood. And this is not the blood of the sacrificial animals, by the way. This is the blood of murder, both figurative and literal. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Why did God reject Israel's worship? The answer is that their sinful behavior outside of corporate worship invalidated their behavior inside of corporate worship. Notice what they were doing in their day-to-day lives outside of temple worship, outside of the Sabbath, was was at direct odds with what they were professing to be doing during their religious rituals. So yeah, they were dotting the I's and crossing the T's of religious observance. They didn't miss a Sabbath. They didn't miss a festival. They got their sacrifices. They were the right sacrifices. If you were to take a picture of them during temple worship or on the Sabbath, you'd say, wow, this is a really religious people. They're really pious. But then if you were to take a picture with them the rest of the week, you would have had a totally different picture because their lives outside of corporate public worship was a very different thing from who they were Day to day and and throughout the week, and and, and elsewhere in all their relationships. Uh, Yeah, they did offer sacrifices, but on the other hand, their hands were full of blood. And and this is the blood of violence, both literal violence, but also just the the image of, of attacking, betraying, slandering, backbiting, all the things we do to hurt one another. He says in verse 17, or end of verse 16, Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Uh, you know, there are people in, in their society who were in power and people who were poor and weak and defenseless and didn't have power. And he's saying, you know, you're taking advantage of these people. Those who are in power are not bringing justice and fairness to those without power. And no one's doing anything to protect them or stand up for them. It had become an unjust, corrupt society. Just to give you a little more image of, of what was going on in Israel at this time, look down at verse um, 23. He says, Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the Father unless the widow's case does not come before them. They love graft more than justice and righteousness. Or just to get another picture of what was going on outside of public worship, look at uh, chapter 3, verse Verse 16. This, uh, this is a very, uh, this kind of graphic verse. The Lord says, chapter 3, verse 16, The women of Zion are haughty. Oh, the, haughty. It's a good word. Walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. It's, it's this picture of, you know, not that there's something wrong with jewelry. That's not the point. The, the point is, it's this kind of kind of flirty, arrogant, sort of uh, atmosphere that people treated each other with outside of worship. Or look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 8. Again, just trying to paint a picture of what was going on in the social life of Israel outside of temple worship. Verse 8 says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Now remember, the land was given by family allotment as a permanent inheritance. But there are some people who are just buying up the the, the family inheritance land of all the peoples around them and just making their place bigger and bigger and bigger. There's this greed, this insatiable avarice among the people. Or look down at uh, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. You know, they they party hardy outside of worship. That's who these people were. Or look at verse 20. Just one more. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Well, you know, I am a master's degree. I do have a Ph.D., I am an ordained minister. You know, I do have training. You know, and there's this kind of intellectual pride. We're wise. We're smart. You know, we don't really have to take this stuff too seriously. And so, you know, people get too smart for God. People get too smart for religion. And so, yeah, they do the religious observance because it's part of the culture. But outside of that, they're like, I'm a little bit too educated for all that stuff. I don't need all this kind of religiosity. I'm not a zealot or a fanatic. And so, because of this, God says... I don't want your worship anymore. What you do during the temple worship, what you do on your Sabbaths, is totally invalidated by who you are outside of worship. Ultimately, the problem with Israel was what the problem always is, the heart. The heart is the heart of the matter. That was the problem in Israel. It says in Isaiah chapter 29, that famous verse, you've heard it, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And and that was the problem. They didn't have a heart for God. They, they, They could get all of the religious rituals right, but the heart was missing. What God really wants from us today is men and women and boys and girls and teenagers and young people and old people who have a heart that is zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ, who love God with our whole heart and our whole mind and strength. That's what God's looking for. Because when I love God with my whole heart it's going to get worked out in the rest of my life. When I really love God, yeah, I'm going to be faithful in my religious observance, it's going to come from my heart. And when I get outside of church, when I walk out that, that door at the end of the service today, I'm not going to switch into a different person. I'm going to still be loving God with my whole heart. I'm going to still be wanting to serve my wife and serve my family and the people around me and live out the love of Christ throughout the whole of my life. There's not going to be this fragmented sort of I'm one person here and I'm a different person here if my heart is in the right place. In fact, uh, have you ever uh, seen that verse, Second Chronicles 16.9? It's an awesome verse. It says, The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. If you want a good memory verse just to work on for next month, just do that verse. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. That's what God's looking for. God's got a whole world full of King Saul's and He's looking for a David. He's looking for a man after his own heart. He's looking for a woman after his own heart. He's looking for a little kid after his own heart who will be zealous for the Lord and fully committed to Him. And that's the problem in Israel. They, they, they didn't have the heart that loved the Lord and as a result, the outward manifestations of their life were hypocritical and contradictory. They had a shell of piety, but on the inside it was hollow and empty. They uh, were like a casket, you know, a beautiful wooden casket covered with flowers. That's what their religion looked like. But if you open it up, inside, it was dead and decaying and rotten. They, they were hypocrites. That's what we'd call them today. You think you hate hypocrites. God really hates hypocrites. God hates it worse than we do. And so God condemns Israel for their hypocritical religion. What's interesting is that this theme runs throughout the Bible. This is a common theme. Uh, thing that God warns us against is hypocritical religion. A religion where we do the externals of of ritual, where we sing the hymns, we sing the choruses, we clap our hands, we listen faithfully to the sermon, we take notes, we put money in the offering plate. You know, we do all those things that are outwardly identified as religious and they're all good things. But then we go home or we go wherever and we're a different person. We're not that same zeal and piety in our relationships with one another in the workplace and at school. And it's that, that, uh, that duality, that double-facedness, that hypocrisy that God condemns. He condemns it in the, uh, the prophets. Pick out your sermon notes for a minute. What I did in your sermon notes is I listed a series of texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament that, in which God condemns hypocritical religion. I could have filled up pages and pages of this. I just selected a few. But uh, just to give you a sense of the theme in the Scriptures. For instance, if you look on the front, uh, the second quote down there says, Jeremiah 721 21-23. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifice, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. Or Ezekiel chapter 33, My people come, come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and who plays the instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. It's like, sorry Ezekiel, you're basically Barry Manilow. You just sing love songs and people listen and they say, wow, that sounds really nice and then they they leave the concert, they leave the show. You know, great sermon pastor! love the sermon today, thank you. I mean, I do need that encouragement. But if that's all it was, was great sermon. You know, great movie, great performance. The whole point of preaching is is to get myself and to you to come face-to-face with the living God and do business with Him. And if we do anything short of that, what was the point? You know, stay home and, and kick back and read the paper. The whole point of coming to worship and gather and studying God's Word and preaching a sermon is so that you and I will come before the living God and do business with Him on a regular basis. And and so if that's not happening, you know, it's just like this. It's like you're someone singing beautiful love songs. Or if you look at the next page. Let's uh, jump forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus, of course, continues this theme of railing against hypocritical worship. Of course, His uh, main targets were the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the experts. The experts at outward religious behavior, but on the inside they were corrupt. I mean, these same people who were the, the experts at keeping the law were the same people who were plotting on how to kill Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that? If, if, if the people who were leading a religious community were plotting how to murder people? I mean, think about the disconnect. Something is really wrong here, even if you disagreed with somebody. So it says in Matthew 23, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they had the position of teaching the law. That was their job, to teach the law to the people. He says, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill... In Kuman. I mean, these guys were the masters of religious technicality. They, they even tithed their spices. I don't know what your spice rack looks like. Mine's just a big jumble of little you know, bottles. Jennifer asked me to get something out of there. I, can, I never find it. I keep spinning the thing around until I find I don't know where it is. And she goes in and finds it. I mean, you know, can you imagine going to your spice rack? If, if, if you said, I'm going to go home today, I'm going to tithe my spices, okay, just think of the, of the precision here. These people, you know, like, gee, a tenth of this. I mean, they had tithing down. You could not beat these people on tithing at all. They were the masters of external religious rituals. Jesus says, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, faithfulness. I mean, this is the stuff that matters, really. Notice this line you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You know, it's not wrong to tithe. In fact, we should tithe. And, and that's something I want to mention here, Just if I could just kind of do a digression. And that is, I, I want to make sure that you, you understand that I'm not preaching moralism. And that was my one worry when I was writing this sermon, that you might think that I was talking about just being moral. Moralism is the, is the philosophy that basically says, uh, just be a good person. That's moralism. You know, it's all just about being a good person. All the religions of the world just teach you to be a good person. That's what it boils down to which, you know, people say that, it shows they've never studied the religions of the world, but, you know, people say these kinds of things. You know, it's just about being good, that's all that really matters. not really about going to church, you don't need to go to church, just be good. And, And that's moralism, I'm not saying that. It's important that we have the external religious ritual as well as the moral. Moralism is a kind of hypocrisy too, because there's no moralist who's really that moral. And moralists think they're moral and they proclaim to be high and mighty, but what you'll find when you talk to them is they've defined morality in such a way that it fits very nicely into who they are and how their life is being lived. And and if you really looked at our lives and really said, are we moral? I mean, nobody can stand up to God's moral uh, guidelines. So moralism is a kind of hypocrisy just as ritualism is a kind of hypocrisy. The point is, is our heart surrendered to the Lord? And if our heart is totally surrendered to Christ... We will have both religious ritual and morality in our lives. It will be a natural outgrowth. Isn't that what Jesus says in the very next line? He says, You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Here we go. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside the heart, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, And then the outside will be clean also. Start with the heart. Let the heart be totally given over to the Lord. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. And then when that happens, the rituals will happen. And when I stand in worship and I sing the praise songs and listen to the sermon and give my money in the offering plate, it's going to be coming out of heart of love to God. And when I walk out of worship and I, I interact with my wife or interact with my roommate or interact with the people at work, I'm going to be living out of a love for Christ because I'm a loving Christ no matter where I am and there's not going to be this disconnect between two parts of my lives. Or just to move on here, look at the next one. This is from the New Testament Epistles. This is from that uh, warm, touchy-feely book of James that always makes us all feel so happy and snug. (sighs) James. He says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Ouch! (laughs) Does that hit you? Worthless religion? I start thinking about all the things I've said this week. Yeah, do we keep a tight rein on our tongue? Do I, do I lie? Do I exaggerate? Do I, do I criticize people? Am I one of those negative people who's always got a complaint about this and pointing out, you know, am I the person who's the expert in finding the problems and everything? And I'm always tearing down and bringing people down and criticizing and showing the faults? Am I the kind of person who, who's stirring up conflict by talking about people behind their backs? I mean, you know, th- this is a... Historic, not, not, I'm not talking about archery. I mean, a historic Baptist problem is being contentious and divisive. This is Baptist churches. I mean, there's a jillion Baptist denominations because Baptists like to fight, it seems, for some reason. It's part of our independent nature. And, and so, you know, we, we're fighting against each other and we're talking against each other and stirring up politics in the church and then we all open up our hymnals and, you know, blah, la, la, You know, Come on! God says it's worthless to come and sing my praises if your tongues are lashing out against one another. Or he says in the next line, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself pure from being polluted by the world. So yeah, if I really love God, I'm going to help people in need around me. Are you sitting in your pew? Am I sitting in my pew? Do I know of someone two seats down who is in real need? And if I'm not willing to help them in some way, what's the point of me sitting in the pew? You know, if someone's in need, people, we have enough resources in this church that nobody in this church should be without food, without shelter, without clothes. If there's anyone in this church who, who's constantly going without those things and, and, and they're struggling and we're not taking care of them, we, are, you know, we might as well not meet here in worship until we go take care of that. Because we can do that in this church. We can care for one another. Not that the church becomes a big handout machine to the whole universe, but you know, we can care for people who are really in need and, and look out for one another. We have to be able to do that. I think about the, uh, the deacon board in our church. You guys know we have a deacon board, and part of the de- basically the deacon's commission is to care for the, be a caring and compassionate ministry to the church. You know, but one of the challenges the deacons are facing is the church is growing. I mean, between three services, little kids, you may have like 600 people in church on a Sunday, and there's how many deacons? Like 12? I mean, are we really going to say, well, the deacons are going to take care of the care and compassion in the church? They can't do that. It's very difficult. And I think anytime as a church, we, and I'm not saying we're doing this, but we have to be careful of saying, well, they take care of the love in the church. <laughs> That's the Love and Compassion Committee. And, oh, we got deacons, so they're taking care of that. It's like, no way. We have to take care of one another. We have to be aware of that modern mindset that says that the church is the organization, the church is the committee, the church is the program. And unless we see something organizationally happening, we say, why isn't the church doing anything? Why isn't the church helping somebody? And, and the, answer, the question comes back, well, what are you doing about it? You know, well, well, I mean the church. Well, who do you think you are? If you're doing it, the church is doing it. If I'm reaching out and helping somebody, even if none of you know about it, the church is doing it. Because the church is first and foremost a community and an organism. Secondly, an organization. But the organization is secondary. It's, it's sort of just what we have to do to make things work together. But we're a body. We care for each other. And so it, it's not just the deacons. We all have to be a caring community. Or look at this one. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We have to live holy lives and not be given over to corruption. I, I think I've told this story once before. I'll tell it again, and if you've heard it before, you know. Sorry, um, uh, my wife uh, was used to work in Boston when I was in seminary, and she had the sort of the usual cast of characters in her office. And there was sort of this large segment of the population there who were—they were pretty hard party animals. And these people knew how to party, and you know they were in their 30s and 40s, but they could still party with the best of them. And I know I, I went to. Like, you know, one of those office parties, like Christmas parties at the end of the year, and spouses are invited, and you woo! Know, these people knew how to, to throw it down and get down, and, you know, it was crazy. It, some wild things were going on. Uh, but I'll tell you what, come Ash Wednesday, these same people were at church getting the ash in their forehead. I mean, you could not keep them away from church. They had to get that ash, and they wear it around all day. You know, went to Ash Wednesday. I got, and it's like, who cares? If you're a party animal all the time and that one day a year... You... Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not railing against Ash Wednesday. I have no problem with Ash Wednesday. It's not in the Bible, but it's just a human ritual that's been created to express religious devotion. I have no problem with it. We create all kinds of rituals here in the Baptist church that aren't in the Bible. So again, I'm not against Ash Wednesday or liturgy like that or getting ash in your forehead. It can be a beautiful symbol if it's combined with true repentance of the heart which is the real issue. It's supposed to be an outward symbol of an inward reality. So, but, but if we have a polluted life, if my life outside of worship is just filthy, then what was the point? What was the point? The fact is that we as human beings, the fact is that I as a human being, gravitate so naturally toward outward, physical, tangible, controllable, measurable expressions of religion. And I have a very difficult time dealing with the heart issues of holiness Righteousness and godliness toward others—that's hard to do. The easy thing to do is to say, "I was at church and I did this and I did that." In fact, when things get tough, human beings gravitate toward outward religious behaviors. Uh, You know, I'll never forget the Friday after 9/11. Some of you guys remember that too. It it wasn't it a Tuesday, I think. 9/11 was that Friday. Was we had a big prayer service, you know, like a lot of churches did. We put a sign out front that said "Prayer." You know, 7 or 8 o'clock or whatever on that Friday. And uh, I don't know, if any of you here that, that night? It was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, this place was like standing room only. It was packed. It was awesome. It was awesome just to see people coming to pray. And I just thank God for that. And, and people were pouring into churches all over the place. It, you know, everyone was like, wow, we've got to get our heads back in the game here. People were coming into churches. But, you know, what's happened since then? Where's the fruit? You know, I'm not condemning people coming to pray. That's a good thing. But what I'm saying is, you know, if it's just, oh, I'm, you know, I'm freaked out, I've got to go to church. And when people get freaked out, they go to church, they wear a cross, they light a candle, they do things like this to kind of make themselves feel better. But what God is looking for is repentance and holiness of life. He's looking for us not just to say, I need to go to church, but to fall on our knees and say, God, I am a sinful man. God, I realize my life is short. It could end like that. Am I right with you, Lord? Am I walking with you? That's what God is looking for out of these cataclysmic events. And anything short of that just misses the point. It misses the point. God is looking for a heart devotion to Him. Look on page 3 of the sermon notes. Here's a great quote from the old Puritan Matthew Henry. Boy, this is so true. He says, When sinners undergo the judgments of God, they will more easily be brought to fly to their devotions than to forsake their sins and reform their lives. Or John Oswalt, talking about this human behavior, he says, Throughout the history of religion, the trend has always been to maximize the physical while minimizing the spiritual. The physical aspects of religion are observable and to some extent measurable, whereas the spiritual aspects are very difficult to measure. How can you be sure you're loving, your, being loving towards your neighbor? Yet, you can count the number of times you've gone to church and can record the amount of money that you've given. So it's natural that we do these things. I'm such a hypocrite. I'm such a hypocrite. I wish my life matched my devotion inside of church as it does outside of church. I'm, I'm, just, I'm a hypocrite. And I'm sick of it. Are, are, are you a hypocrite too? Do you lead a double life? Do you come and sing the songs in church and listen to the sermon and, you know, "Mm, yeah, right on, Pastor. And then, you know, do we go out and just... Are are we bitter? Do you have like a hard edge inside you? Are you an angry person who has just an axe to grind with the world and with particular people and, and bitterness and resentment in your heart? And then we try to come into worship and sing praise? I mean, man, get in touch with that and deal with it before God so that we're the same person in church as out of church? Are you a person who is uh, overrun by, by lust, and lust just gallops in your life and just out of control, and there's infidelity of all different kinds of manifestations in your life? You know, get in touch with that. Repent. Seek the Lord. Get serious about holiness in terms of your sexuality. Are you a, uh, are you a person who's um, worshipping all the idols of suburban life? The religion of modern suburbia, all the idols of gadgets and people looking at us and what do they think of me when I drive this car and what do they think of me when I wear these clothes and, you know, my image, my style, the gadgets, the toys, the upgrades, the new versions. I mean, is this the stuff that our hearts are obsessed with? Is my heart constantly running after these things or is my heart focused on Christ? Am, am I an idolater in that sense? Is my, is my zeal for Christ just so low? Maybe it's been like 20 years since you've really been zealous for Christ. You've just been like a little ember burning. And you remember when you were younger there was this bonfire and somehow it's died down. Man, aren't you sick of that? Don't you want to return to that bonfire that you used to have for Christ where your heart was aflame with love for Him? And wouldn't it be great if we could go back to that? Wouldn't it be great if we could be cleansed of all the garbage in our lives? Wouldn't it be great if the fire of God would fall from heaven on our hearts and just burn away all the sinful things I'm ashamed of and burn away all the idols I've set up in my life that are just cluttering my soul and and set me on fire for Christ again so that my heart is ablaze for Him? Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, look what the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Oh, this is such a great verse. This is such a great verse. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Ah, That's so awesome. God can do the impossible. God can do that which is totally inconceivable. How can you take a shirt that's white but has been stained with tie-dye and grape juice and wine and blood, how can you get those stains out? You know, where's the detergent that'll do that? This is like, like a laundry commercial. You know, this miracle detergent. God can take our clothes which have been stained with the grape juice and the wine of sin and the blood of sin and He can wash them so that they're just white as snow. God can take our dirty laundry of all of our sin and all of our self-righteousness and waywardness and the way we've hurt people, the failures in our lives. He can take that and make it as white and pure as a bride's dress on her wedding day. God can do that. He can do the impossible. Not only can he wash us clean, he can also change our hearts. He can take my hard heart that is away from him and exchange it with a living heart that loves him. And we say, how does he do that? How can God do that? How how does He pull that one off? What is the miracle detergent? And the answer, of course, you know the answer, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the miracle cleanser from God. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God takes the crimson blood of Christ. He applies it to my crimson sins and my crimson past. And it's white as snow. How did that happen? It's a miracle. God can forgive us. That is God's method, the sacrifice of His Son. And so all of the sins that we can't be forgiven for, all the guilt we wrestle with, all of the things that couldn't be cleansed through Israel's sacrifices are now cleansed through Jesus. In fact, all those sacrifices in the Old Testament that Israel was doing were pointing forward to Jesus. And all of the rituals that we do here in the Christian church that can't really save us, like communion and baptism, they don't save us, but they point backward to the same thing, to Jesus in His blood. It is Jesus and his blood shed on the cross is how we are forgiven of our sins. So what do we need? What can we do? Look at verse 19. He says, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. Our job is to be willing. Our job is to say, Okay, Lord, I I need it. I need you to save me. I can't do it. God, I need you. There's no ritual. There's no sacrament. There's no thing that Jeremy can do or a priest can say. There's no absolution the church can grant. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that I can be saved. And we just come before God, empty and broken, and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. I want Christ in my life. And if you will just come with that simple willingness and openness, with nothing in your hands except your sin, and come to Jesus and say, God, let's start over. God can do it. He can make you a new person. It's like in the book of Luke, chapter 16. Turn there just briefly and then we'll close. Luke chapter 16. It's on page uh, 1036. Oh, I'm sorry, 18. 1038, Luke 18, verse 9. says to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, of course, was the paradigm of religious virtue and the tax collector really worse scum in those days. It says in verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at the distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, rather than the other guy, went home justified before God. We simply have to be willing and say, God, forgive me. If you ever come to Christ in that way, you may have grown up in the church, but you've never known the love and forgiveness of Christ. Or maybe you are a Christian and it's time to get back with Him, to walk with Him faithfully. God, crucify the hypocrisy in my life. God, pierce and destroy all the hypocrisy and sin in my life. Let my heart be fully devoted to You. As we come to communion to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating what Jesus did for us, the fact that He alone is our Savior. This is a religious ritual. It means we have to be careful. It means we have to make sure that our hearts are in the right place, that we're not just performing some outward act. And so this table is open to anyone today who knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you really are a Christian, if you've put your faith in Christ, you're welcome to eat here. Even if you're a different denomination... It doesn't matter. This is not the Baptist table. This is not the Catholic table. This is not the Lutheran table. It's the table of Jesus Christ. And if you have Christ in your heart, if you've truly trusted in Him as your Savior and been born again, you're welcome to eat at this table with us. And if not, I just invite you to pass the elements by and participate by observing. And the reason we do that is not to exclude people or make you feel awkward, but simply because we want to be truly doing rituals that are coming out of our hearts and that connect with us spiritually. If that's not where you're at, then don't do the ritual. It also means for those of us who are Christians that we need to make sure our hearts are right with God, that we need to make sure we are seriously trying to follow Christ, that our hearts are humbled before Him. And Maybe if you're not, this is a time just to get on your knees and say, God, I've got to come back. God, have mercy on me again. Let's let our hearts and our religious lives and our outward home lives and our work lives all be committed to Christ. Now I invite the elders to join me here at the table. As we remember, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he was having the Passover Seder with his disciples and he took some of the matzah, the unleavened bread, and he gave it a new symbolic meaning. He took some of that matzah in front of his disciples and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And uh, Rick Coughlin, would you give thanks for the broken body of Christ? Father God, we thank you so so very much.
1: While we wanted nothing to do with you, while we were running off on our own, you looked beyond that. And you gave your
0: son for us. You died for us. And Jesus, we thank you so much for your willingness and your obedience for allowing us to break your body and in that providing salvation for us. Father, change our hearts. Change our minds. Change our wills, Conform us. Mold us to your image in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As the elders bring these elements around, I just invite you to take this time to pray. Just spend it with the Lord confess sin, to thank Him, to worship Him, to be silent before Him. Let's pray together. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, I thank you for your great love for us. Lord, we've looked into the mirror of Isaiah 1 and we've seen the hypocrisy in our own lives. And yet I thank you, God, that you look at us and rather than destroying us and rejecting us, You've sent Jesus to love us and embrace us and forgive us. I thank You, Jesus, that Your love has come from heaven to earth to die for us, to rescue us, and to save us. Lord Jesus, we want to be in a vibrant, loving relationship with You. We don't want anything less. We are sick of mere outward religiosity. Lord, we are sick of the double standards in our lives. We want our hearts to be ablaze with love for You. We want to know You, Jesus. We want to walk in Your ways. So forgive our sins and then give us a love for you, Christ. We, we just want to be so close with you. We want people outside of church to clearly recognize that we are Christians. Not just when we're sitting in church singing a hymn, but when we're making photocopies, when we're walking down the hallway at school, when we're walking around the mall. May there be something about the way we treat others and interact and live our lives that would be so clear that there's a holiness to us that continues outside of worship. Lord Jesus, walk with us and live in us in a vibrant and new, fresh way. you have any doubts that God loves you then look to the cross, look to the body of Christ that was broken let's eat together and we remember then that at the end of the supper he took a cup of wine and he gave it a new symbolic meaning he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, would the elders join us again and Tim Ells, would you give thanks for Christ's shed blood on the cross?
1: Heavenly Father, we are not worthy to come into your presence. We cannot lift our heads up to you. But through the gracious gift of your Son, through the shedding of his blood, we have that awesome privilege to come here today to join you in this
0: celebration.
1: We're so grateful, Lord. For
0: God loves you more than you can even comprehend. With every drop of Christ's blood that was hitting the dirt, it was God saying, I love you, I love you. With every groan that Christ uttered on the cross, God was saying, I love you, I forgive you, come to me, my people. God was reaching out to you and He loves you in Christ. And so let us just rejoice in His love and His salvation. Let's drink together. Would you stand and let me close the service in prayer. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for the privilege of being in worship with your people. I thank you for this congregation whose hearts really are seeking you. I know these people, Lord, and I know that they want that purity of life inside of worship and outside of worship. So, Lord, grant it to us. Grant us the forgiveness we need for our sins. Give us a new heart that would seek after you. Then fill us up, Lord, with joy and love and righteousness. Help us to be Christ followers, whether we're in church singing a hymn, whether we're driving around town, or whether we're in the office in a hectic meeting. Lord, let the love of Christ just be shining through us all the time. Lord, I pray that that we might be able to, to win over those skeptics who have written off Christ because of the hypocrisy they've seen in Christians. Lord, let that not be said of us at this church. Help us to be true followers, full of love and humility, wherever we are. Fill us up with the living Christ today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.